after the kids' lesson, they can be dismissed uh, to the lobby. Um, this morning, we'll be continuing our way through the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 12 this morning, um, at the very beginning of it. Last week, um, we're actually kind of seeing part two of a dialogue that, that took place um, with the religious leaders, with the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. We, we saw them come and ask Jesus last week, where does your authority come from? And Jesus responded to them and In our text this morning, he's in a way continuing his answer, and he's continuing his answer by telling them a parable. Let's look to that now, chapter 12 and verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press. He built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from some of, the, get some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he s- sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and threatened him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him, and they went away. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we look to your word this morning, we would hear the truth. We pray we would respond appropriately to the truth before us. Oh, Father, would you use your word this morning to humble our hearts, to draw us again to the foot of the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may have heard that just about two years ago, there was a big college admission scandal um, connected with some of the top universities in the country, all of it centering around really one guy named Rick Singer. Uh, Through him, he had taken in over $25 million from over 33 parents um, who were trying to get their kids into top-level schools. And their kids didn't necessarily have the grades, but they had the means, and they thought they deserved to get their kids into these top schools. So uh, via him, they would pay people to take college admissions exams for them, or even by through generous gifts to coaches and administrators at certain schools, um, they would allow their kids at these schools to be treated as though they were elite athletes being recruited. And therefore, they would jump to the front of the line when it came to admissions. Of course, all of this was a far. Some 50 uh, people have been charged, including 33 parents in the process. Some have already served jail sentences for this. Um, What were these parents doing? Uh, These parents, they refused to submit to the 
process, right? The normal process. They, they thought they were entitled because of what they had, because, you know, they were actors and actresses or whatever, you know, because of, uh, of their wealth. They, they thought that they had the right to get whatever they wanted. They felt they deserved special treatment because of who they were, right? In some ways, we, we see something similar this morning as we look at this group of, of tenant farmers. These tenant farmers have come to the place where they think they deserve something more than they have gotten. And ultimately, they think, as we're going to see, they, they think they deserve to get the whole vineyard, even though they didn't build it. Now, as we approach the story, there's a couple of things that we need to understand about this story that I think are helpful to us. Uh, the first is, of course, th- this is a true story. Now, not true story in the sense of what's actually going on in the vineyard, but what Jesus is pointing to, it's playing out right in front of their eyes, right? Jesus, in just a couple of days from from sharing this parable, he is going to be crucified, okay? Jesus here, he's telling a true story. And, And the interesting thing here is most of his parables weren't easily discerned. You remember often he would uh, take his disciples aside afterwards and then explain it to them, right? That's not the case with with this parable. It seems to come with great clarity, such great clarity that we see uh, the religious leader's response at the end. They perceived that he had told the parable against them. They saw it for what it was. They understood the parable and they were not very fond of it. It wasn't a lack of their understanding that was the problem. In fact, part of their ability to understand was it was a familiar story to them. Okay, Whenever they heard this, no doubt they would have been reminded, we probably aren't, but they would have been reminded of Isaiah chapter 5, which says this, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. See if you see some familiar language from what we just read a moment ago. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it. He cleared its stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in its midst. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked to it for a yield of grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Do you, do you see some familiarities? The, the story is very similar. That story is about Israel as a whole and its fruitlessness. Jesus takes that story and he changes. He tweaks a few things in that story. And the story becomes about the religious leaders. As he is pointing out things um, about them, he directs it at them. So as we, we look at this story this morning, I want us to look at it in a couple of parts. First, very quickly, we're going to see the character of the owner, the character of the tenants, and then we're going to see the response of them both. First, the, the, the character of the owner, verse 1, a man planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it. He dug a pit for the wine press, he built a tower, and he leased it to the tenants and he went into another country. What does he do? He, he creates this beautiful vineyard. Okay, he, he, he builds it up himself. It's a superb vineyard. He, he plants it. Okay, he puts a fence all the way around it. He, he builds the wine press that's going to be used. He builds a tower so that you can look out over it and you can guard and, and watch out for anything that may be coming in to take over the vines. He spared no expense. Okay, the owner builds this magnificent vineyard. Okay. It's a bountiful provision that he gives to these tenants who are going to take over it, all right? And as we see, as we'll see in a minute, we're not going to go into it right now, but, but not only does this owner give bountiful provision, 
But he's also incredibly patient, isn't he? He's so patient and merciful. We'll talk about that more in a minute as he's so patient and merciful uh, with these tenants for so long. And at the end of the day, what does he do? He entrusts his vineyard. It's his vineyard, but he entrusts it to these tenants and he leased it to the tenants and he went into another country. Jesus here is is talking, of course, to the religious leaders. That's who his audience is, and, and that's who he's talking about. The religious leaders in this parable are represented by these tenants. And Jesus is saying to them, do you see all that God has provided? Do you see his provision? He provided all of this to you, and he entrusted it to you. And what are you going to do with it? What did you do with it? It's a moment for us, too to be reminded of his provision. I think we can all look at the provision of God has given to us, and it's quite abundant, isn't it? Far greater than we could ever ask or think. Now, we can complain, and we do, right? We're very good at even complaining about the provision that he gives us because we're never quite satisfied. It's never quite enough, but boy, is that provision quite bountiful. Boy, does he provide for his people. So there's a bit of the character of the owner, this one who provides, this one who's patient. And then we see the character of these rebels. Let's look at them. Verse 2, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully, and he sent another. They killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He sends a servant. Now, likely some time has passed here, okay? Uh, Vineyards don't just grow up immediately. It's a a couple of years process, and and likely he he created this great vineyard, and he left it with the tenants. They signed their agreement. This is what percentage back of the fruits you're going to get since you are the owner, and we're farming it, if you were, for you. Um, so likely multiple years have passed, and he, he sends his servant at harvest time. It's time for them to pay up for the usage of his vineyard. He owns it. And what do they do with the first servant? They beat him. Okay. But he doesn't stop there. M- most vineyard owners would probably just stop with that and take things over, right? What does he do? He sends another. And the next one, they strike on the head and treat shamefully. Then he sends a third and they kill this servant. And it doesn't end there. The, the owner is still not done. And he's still not done with his patience with these tenants. He sends more. He sends others. Some, our text says, they beat. And some they killed. <laughs> this is quite incredible when you think about it. And how long did all this play out? Likely it played out over multiple harvests, okay? The, the, the patience of this owner spreads out over time. And the, the, the religious leaders who were hearing Jesus share this, as he was talking about these servants who were sent, I don't think there would be much doubt in their mind what it is that he was really talking about. Let's look at Jeremiah 7, it helps us here, uh, from the the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent who? All my servants, the prophets, 
Okay, that, that's how the prophets are often referred to as his, his servants. He's, he's sent my servant, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or inclined their ear, but they stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. He said over and over, I've sent my servants, and you haven't listened. And we have a graphic illustration of it in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehida, the priest, and he stood above the people, and he said to them, thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. And we see here, what? A call to repentance, a call. Do you, do you see what you're doing? Um, do you see what you're doing, Zechariah says to the Israelites? But what is the response? But they conspired against him, and by command of the king, what do they do? They stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. They stoned him right there in the temple. Okay, why? Because they didn't want to hear the news that the servant of God was bringing them. Okay, this is what was going on. This is what Jesus here is. He's he's telling this story. He's trying to get at the heart of the issue. There is a major heart issue with these religious leaders that he's speaking to, right? A major heart issue, a heart issue that's seen in these tenets. And what is the heart issue of these tenets? These tenets, they're acting like the, 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 the things of the owner of the vineyard, that, that his things belong to them. They're acting as though his things belong to them. You know, they had signed the lease. They knew what they were getting into, right? And then they'd worked it. The owner's off. You know, he's off in a far country. He's, he's far away. But they begin to think, hey, this should be ours. We're the ones doing all the work here. Well, not really. They didn't do all the work to build it, right? They, they didn't buy the property. They didn't hew out the wine press. They didn't do all of that. But, but over time, they begin to think, this is ours. This is rightfully ours. This should be ours. They didn't own it. And they didn't build it but they wanted to claim it as their own. Do you want us to think, how much are we like these rebellious tenets in this passage? God has given to you and I incredible provisions. Do we ever act like those rebellious tenets? Wanting to claim those things for ourselves. They're, they're really ours. They're really mine. I'm the one that worked really hard for this. Right? This, this, this is mine. Do, or, or do we treat the, the gifts? Do we treat the vineyard that's been handed over to us, entrusted to us, do we treat it as a gift? And do we acknowledge that what we have is really His? In a sense, do we understand in our life, as we, as we live out our life, do, do we understand that we are tenant farmers? We understand that we are tenant farmers. We, we, we've been entrusted. We've been given bountiful provisions. But we need to be reminded of whose those really belong to. We need to be reminded of who the owner really is. Now, the response to the owner and him sending his servants is terrible on the part of the tenants, right? 
you know, some they, they kill. They kill multiple individuals that he, he sent. What is the owner's response going to be to all of this after he sent servant after servant after servant? We don't know how many. Because of the incredible character of the owner, what does he do? He does the unthinkable, verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he, he sent him to them saying, they'll respect my son, right? They'll, they'll respect him. Now, whenever we hear this language of a beloved son, you know, like sirens should start going off in our head because we've already seen that beloved son two other times in the Gospel of Mark. We saw it back in chapter 1 when Jesus was baptized. What did we see? But a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, With you, I am well pleased. And then in chapter 9, we saw it at the transfiguration where that voice came from heaven, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The connection is clear. Who is the beloved son in our parable before us this morning? Who is the beloved son? It is, of course, Jesus. The connection is crystal clear. And, And as we just think about the fact that this owner of the vineyard, after everything that he suffered, loss of so many servants, that he sends his beloved son, we need to pause just for a moment and just think back to that one character that we put off for a moment, his incredible patience. The owner is incredibly patient and merciful, isn't he? What incredible patience. If, if, if you or I, you know, if, we had a, if this owner had a business advisor, you know, after just the very first person after they refuse to listen to the very first servant, they need to be out of there. They need to be gone. Maybe you'll give them a second chance. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth, we don't know how many chances at this point he's given them. And even after everything, he does the audacious thing of sending to them his beloved son. Jesus, as he's telling this parable, he's telling it to these religious leaders. And he's saying to them, do you, do you understand how incredibly patient I've been with you? I, I, I've sent the prophets, and yet you've rejected them. And, and right now, the beloved son is standing right before you. That's what Jesus is saying through this parable to the, these religious leaders. He's saying that the beloved son is standing right here before you. What are you going to do with him? Now, the religious leaders, their problem is they're totally lost in their religiosity, aren't they? They're, they're, they're totally lost in this idea that, that, that they can do it. They, they think they have everything together. It's everybody else that's all wrong, which should also tell us something if you ever think that in your own life. I know none, nobody in here has ever thought things like that, like everybody else is crazy. I'm the sane one. Um, that's how these religious leaders were thinking. No, we got it all together. We know how to do this. And we're pretty good. We're working really hard at being really good. And it's in that working hard to be really good that they are totally lost. And so that whenever Jesus comes and he, he, he tells them this story, shares this parable with them, they find themselves not being able to respond to it, right? Now, As we think through this parable, we need to think about how closely it applies to us. 
how much we are like these tenants, rebellious tenants, who've heard the truth over and over again, who, who God has sent, if you will, his prophets to us over and over again, telling us the truth about ourselves. Do we understand how patient God is with you and I? Do you really understand his patience with you? Or maybe do you think like the religious leaders, I'm not that bad. You don't have to be too impatient. There's a problem if you don't understand how incredibly patient God has been with you. Patient with you as you find yourself in that sin yet again. Doing that thing yet again. And the flip side of the coin, patient with you. As you trust again in your own goodness. As you trust again in your own, uh, own ability to do it yourself. Jesus comes to these religious leaders and he's telling them, do you understand the provision that your great God has given to you? All that he's provided. And do you understand his incredible patience for you? Do you understand his provision and his patience. And what is their response? What is the response of the tenants and also of the religious leaders? As I was thinking through this, I was reminded of a a poem called Invictus by William Ernst Henley. And it ends like this. It says, it matters not, he says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. He's very clearly thinking of Scripture. It doesn't matter how, you know, narrow the gate, (laughs) how how much the scroll, the scripture requires of us. He, He says all of that doesn't matter. And this is how he ends that poem. He says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I'm in control, he's saying. It's about me. I, I'm the captain of my soul, the master of my fate. What do we see, the tenants? How, how do the tenants respond to this incredible provision and patience of the owner? They say it's all about us. It's all about me. I will be the, we will be the captain of our own soul. It's about us. Verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they, they threw him out of the vineyard. They're thinking, maybe. Okay, he sent all these servants. We've, we've done away with them. Now he sent his beloved son. If we get rid of him, maybe this vineyard will be ours. Maybe we can find some way to make a legal claim on it. And finally, that which we haven't planted, that which we haven't built will be ours. And in it, they're totally forgetting who they are, right? They're, they're totally forgetting their relationship with the owner. They're totally forgetting that they hadn't built it, that they hadn't planted it. They forgot the builder and the owner. Now, what is the owner's response? It's twofold. I don't know if you saw it as we were reading earlier. But what is the response to this incredible rebellion? This incredible rebellion of of killing the beloved son. Verse 9, we read this. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. That's hard language, right? But there there comes a time when the one who is, is so incredibly patient 
the time has run out. And that's what Jesus is referring to. As, as Paul says in Romans 11, what does he say? But if some of the branches were broken off, the ones that are broken off, these, what Jesus is talking about here will happen, right? Um, that they'll be tossed out of the vineyard. Those who are, are broken off, these, the, the, the Jewish people who, who, who refuse to receive Jesus, those who refuse to receive him, they'll be broken off. And you, although a wild shoot, thinking of the non-Jewish, the, 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 the Gentile believers, they were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. At some point, the patience is going to run out, but Jesus doesn't end it there, okay? Um, and I'm thankful for that because it could be an incredibly depressing moment in the passage because it is about judgment, but it's not just about judgment in this passage, okay? Jesus is saying, yes, judgment will come to those who, who will not respond to the beloved Son. But he goes on to say this, verse 10. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Who is this cornerstone? This cornerstone is the beloved Son. The beloved Son is now the cornerstone. Paul here, he's... Or, Sorry, Jesus here is referring to Psalm 118. And the picture there, there's this picture of the building of the temple and of, uh, of this, this stone. That the ones who were building the temple, they, they rejected this stone. We're not told why. It was, maybe it's the wrong shape, it's the wrong size. So it gets rejected. We're, we're not going to use that stone. And they keep building the temple. Okay? And they, they, they build up the temple and they find themselves they need that one last piece. And that stone that was rejected fits perfectly. Fits perfectly to, to complete it. It, it. it may even function, if you will, as like a keystone, that, that, that piece that holds the rest and what's around it together because even though it was rejected earlier, they find out it's the perfect size, the perfect shape. And the religious leaders who were there hearing these words from Jesus, they understood what he was saying. That he was calling them the tenants, these rebellious tenants. And that they were the builders who were rejecting the beloved son, the cornerstone. And how do they respond to all of this? They're confronted with the truth. And let, let's understand how gracious this is that Jesus shares this with the religious leaders, okay? It can sound very harsh, but it is incredibly gracious because it is, at the end of the day, a call to repentance, okay? J just think of like Jonah and the Ninevites, right? Jonah goes out preaching, it's all going to be destroyed, it's all going to be destroyed. But all of that was to what? In the hopes of repentance, Okay? And the same is here. There, there is still, don't miss it, a hope for repentance from the religious leaders. And what do they do? Verse 12. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and they went away. They didn't have the courage to follow through what they believed. 
They didn't have the courage to do anything to him right then. They refused the truth. They refused to believe that he's really the beloved son. But what's so incredible and actually ironic about this situation is the one that they refused to believe in is the one who tells them precisely what they're going to go do. Right? They're, they're going to go forth and do the very thing that he said they were going to do. And yet at the same time, they're not believing him. It's, the irony is, is deep. What we see is these religious leaders, we see their hearts hardening. Hardening more and more as you go through the Gospel of Mark. Every time they're confronted, their hearts get hardened more and more to the truth. We need to be thinking this morning, how do we respond to the truth when it's brought to us? How do you respond when you hear the truth? Maybe your spouse brings to you the truth about you. Maybe if you're a kid in here, your, your parents bring the truth to you. Maybe a loved one comes to you and shares with you truth about you. How, how do you respond to that truth? Do you receive it well? Do you have a long history of ignoring the truth when it comes to you? When, the, when, when that loved one comes to you and they say, you know what, this is a problem in you. How, how do you respond to that? How do you respond when the truth comes to you? Do you stiffen your neck as the religious leaders do? Do you respond in anger? I fear this happens all too often. People come to us like to the, to the tenants in the vineyard and come to us over and over and over. We don't hear it. We refuse to listen. We, we hear it and maybe we even know that it's true. But we can't really receive it. We refuse to go there. That's one option when we're confronted with the truth, right? But that's not the only option. The religious leaders, as Jesus confronts them with the truth, they, they had another option. They had the opportunity, they had the moment to turn and to repent. Don't miss it. As we look at this passage, please don't miss the fact. Don't just point at them. That's what we, we, we can do so often. Understand that you and I are the rebellious tenants. We're the ones who have to have messengers come to us over and over and over and over telling us about our sin. We find ourselves back in the same things over and over and over again. You see, the tenants, they, they had an opportunity to receive the servants they had an opportunity to, to finally receive the beloved son, but they killed him. You and I, we, we have the opportunity to receive the beloved son, to receive Jesus, to receive the truth as it, it comes to us through him and confess our sins, turning to him, knowing that the beloved son was crucified. For that very thing. He was crucified for us over and over, turning a deaf ear to the truth about ourselves that we need to hear. Now, Jesus' story, this passage here in Acts 12, in a sense, it's not the final word on this story. It's brought up again just, well, several weeks later in Acts chapter 4. Peter, 
should be no surprise to us as being questioned by this very same group of men, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. Maybe plus or minus a few people, but it's the same group of people in Acts 4 who are now confronting Peter. Peter, through the power and work of Jesus in him, had healed a lame man. And now they've dragged Peter before him, and what is it that they ask? They ask, by what power or by what name did you do this? Sounds very similar to what we heard last week at the end of of, uh, Mark 11, right? Where Jesus is being asked by these same leaders, "By, by by what authority do you do this? Now in Acts 4, Peter is being asked the very same question. By by what authority do you do this? And what is Peter's response? Chapter 4, verse 10 of Acts. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Now, let's just pause there for a second. Might that interaction with Jesus even already be coming back to their mind? It's these same religious leaders that Jesus had told that parable to, saying that the the tenants crucified the beloved son. And Peter points at him and said, you crucified him. Whom God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing before you. By him this lame man was able to walk again. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders. Peter says to him, just in case you missed a few weeks ago, when Jesus told you that that, that the builders reject the cornerstone, Jesus, the Jesus whom you crucified, was that cornerstone, which he has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What must have been going through the religious leaders' minds at this moment? Yet again, yet again, the the truth is right there before them. Do you understand what you've done? Do you understand your failure to listen to the prophets? Do you understand your, your, your failure to trust in your great God? Do you understand your failure to see the Messiah when he was right here walking in front of you, the cornerstone? And it was a warning that Peter gave to them, yet another opportunity for them to repent. And yet they failed to. Yet again, confronted with the truth. And they reject it yet again. Do do, do, do you see... The incredible love that our God. Do, do, do you see the incredible love that Jesus has for rebellious people? Even for these rebellious religious leaders that the truth keeps coming to them, calling them to repentance. Do you see his incredible love? He has come to rebels. He's come to those of us who say we want to be the captains of our own soul. We want the vineyard for ourselves, thank you. And the wonder of the story is that at the same time, Jesus is is calling us to see our rebellion, to repent and to, to turn to him. 
That's what Jesus is calling us to do, understand, is is to repent, to turn to him. He is also making the way possible by being killed and thrown out of the vineyard. By being crucified outside the town. By being the rejected cornerstone. And all of this, this wonder of this call for you and I to repent from our rebelliousness, to see our sin, to see our need of Him, and this wonderful provision on His behalf of of a Savior, of one to rescue us. The perfect, the the one that the builders rejected, the, the, the cornerstone. The one that the psalmist says, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Is this good news to us, this good news of the beloved Son and what the beloved Son came and has done, is this good news of of the cornerstone, is it marvelous in your eyes this morning? If we see the truth, it's marvelous. Because you see, when we see the truth, when we see the truth of ourselves, when we see ourselves in a mirror, we, we, we see our sin. We see our desperate need. We see that we can't do this on our own. And we see the wonder of the provision of the beloved Son. Is, it, is the beloved Son is the cornerstone. Is he marvelous in your eyes this morning? Does that good news, does it make you, does it leave you just in awe of his incredible grace, of his incredible patience, of his incredible provision for us? Is Jesus marvelous? in your eyes this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you have so much work to do on us. Oh, we can be so rebellious. We can be so rebellious like those tenant farmers. Over and over we can hear the truth come to us about ourselves. And we can reject it. We can even try to kill the messenger. Oh, would you help us to learn to receive the truth in our life? Would you help us to learn more and more the practice of of repentance, of the need to turn from our sin and turn to our Savior? We thank you for this morning, the incredible reminder of the bountiful an incredible provision of our Savior. Oh, would you help the gospel this morning as we go into this week? Oh, would you help the gospel? Would you help our Savior Himself to remain marvelous in our eyes? We pray.
In Jesus' name, amen.